Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we deliver dialogue-driven explorations of California history and beyond. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover topics that inspire imagination, inform action, and enrich the present. How is history preserved? When we go into a museum or visit an archive and we see those exhibits, what goes into those exhibits? What goes into taking what was at one point an aspect of our present world and preserving it for future generations? What does the role of a city historian have in that process? And where are some of the places or who are some of the people that one meets who has a career? working with the past and working in history. In this episode of The American Attic, we dive into these questions and a whole lot more as we talk to the official city historian for Sacramento. Before this role, our guest was a curator at the Oakland Museum of California and shares with us her unique perspective of the past as informed by her over 30 years of experience working in this space. Our guest also leads preservation efforts at the Center for Sacramento History, one of the oldest collection of California artifacts in this state. So join us, folks, for one more trip up to the American Attic with our guest today, none other than city historian for Sacramento, Marsha Iman. Well, again, Marsha Iman, thank you for joining us today on the American Attic, the Sacramento Historical Society's podcast. Um, thank you for taking the time today. And I feel like just a good place that we can start today's discussion is just to look at your current role that you're at right now. And um, for those listeners that aren't familiar with what it means to be a city historian, could you maybe walk us through that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I will say other state, like the state of New New York, they have city historians for almost every city in the state. And it's not as it's not in California. I don't know of another city historian, but they're uh, Boise, Idaho, because I was friends with her. She was the city historian. So but they all have different um, jobs. Um, But in this case, I'm the city and county for the city and county of Sacramento. And what it means is managing the city's and county's historic assets, which include all of the government records, but also private collections and uh, corporate records, artifacts, Mm -hmm. film, photographs, and making them accessible to the public, but also um, utilizing them to and to continue to collect to tell the broad story of the city and county of Sacramento. Got it. And did I hear that correctly? You said there's there's not a lot of not every city gets a city historian or it's kind of hit or miss sometimes. It's interesting because like, um, you know, um, with all the protests that went around after uh-huh. the death of George Floyd, um, there was this movement to look at what kind of statues are and, you know, what is our civic image? And Los Angeles went through this huge process, um, a huge civic memory project. And at the end, there were like all these things of what the city needed. And at one of the top thing was we need a city historian. And I wow. thought that was great because there's no one there that's looking at these historic assets that's in any way 
um, trying to hold or to tell the story of the city of of Los Angeles because it's compartmentalized between university professors, you know, the city Mm -hmm. library and things like that. But there isn't, it's very unusual in actually Sacramento that they, all of these records are housed in one place and that they're made accessible through the center because it is a state law that the city and county has to provide public access to these materials. Yeah. And, and as the city historian, like you just mentioned, you know, you're involved in a lot of initiatives or or whatever we would want to call them. Um, but what is what's your unique relationship with the Center for Sacramento History in particular? Because I know in Sacramento, um, and I know this through my involvement with the Historical Society, we have a Historical Society, we have a History Alliance, we have a Center for Sacramento History, and then we have a History Museum too. So is there a, a an easy way to kind of distill the relationship between these these groups and stakeholders? The difference between all of those, except for the Center, is we're the only one that collects. Um, nobody else collects. The Got historical it. society doesn't collect. Nobody does except for the Center for Sacramento History. Um, and actually, this um, Sacramento History Museum, the building is owned by the city mm-hmm. and the artifacts are owned by the city. And it was a contractual relationship for them to operate the museum in some way, shape or form, of which it's still being determined what that relationship will be in the future. But those are all city collections. And Got it. So that's the, but the difference is, is that we are the collecting agency. We are the research facility. We are the place that you come to if you want to get access to those materials. Got it. Is, does this, so this um, Sacramento History Museum, they get their artifacts from you then, I'd imagine. Yes. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah, thank you. I was just curious about that. I'm I'm a newcomer to Sacramento uh, a little bit, just been here for three or four years, so it's still figuring out the landscape. It's a confusing thing, and it's one something that the city is looking at, that that's mm-hmm. a really bizarre um, situation. Um, and so it's something that I think is, you know, it's an evolving thing. Sure. But yeah. So, sure. Yeah. And and something that I was curious because I I have a background in history. I got my degree from from Davis, and obviously one of the first questions I get from family and friends is, "Great, what do you got? What are you going to do with a history degree?" Um, I'm sure you face those questions in in your life as well. Um, now that you have you're in this role now where you're um, weekly involved in preservation and historical related topics, is there something that you do that? Um, you look forward to the most with your with your work. I mean, I, I imagine it's a lot like most people's jobs. There are things they enjoy doing more than others. Um, anything come to mind? Well, you know, I'm a gov- I'm a city employee, so there mm-hmm. are obligations of things that I have to do as a city employee, like manage budgets and payroll and all of those things. But you know, the great thing about my job is working with the collection and the opportunity to learn every single day. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, we have a, a really great team here of three archivists um, and two collections staff, uh, 3D staff that just are very passionate about the work they do. And as they are working with the collections, they share that with me. And also when I get to do research and have projects, like I have things that are just my projects because I'm the liaison with the cemetery. Mm -hmm. I also do historic content for Old Sacramento. I work with preservation. So I'm the link between these different departments, which is I enjoy working with all of them. And that's a really wonderful experience. But it's when I like uh, the film series that that's my baby. And I 
um, work with a set of scholars that review the materials that we produce and make comments and then, but the research and that is the best part. I mean, I think that's a lot of why a lot of us become historians is what we learn when we do the research that that's, it's like doors open all the time and we yeah. find new things and that's the best part. And yeah, I had a lot of, my aunt used to say, why do you want to be around all that old stuff? Um, which is not an uncommon question, uh-huh. um, but the thing is, I don't think a lot of people realize the diversity of things that you can do with a history degree. Most people think you're either going to you're going to teach and uh-huh. that's kind of the most. But there are you can become involved in preservation. There's archives work. There's public historians, but there's a lot of work in museums as well that you can. But there are independent companies that hire historians just to do research. Mm-hmm. And I know quite a few people that do that kind of work. And now con- consulting is becoming a big deal because less and less they want full-time employees. So you can actually be a full-time consultant and make a, a pretty good living. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, something that I was, I was curious about, too, in, in preparation for this discussion was, um, you know, so so that's kind of a snapshot of, of what you're doing now and some of the things you're involved in. How how did you get to this position here? You know, I imagine there's certifications, you got to have your degree and all this stuff. But was history something that you had a natural leaning towards, you know, growing up and heading in that direction? Well, I used to joke with my when I I grew up on a farm and um, I found out that my great uncle who owned the farm before us, um, had buried his garbage in the back. So I excavated it and I found um, glass milk bottles from the dairy that didn't no longer existed and mm-hmm. all of these different medicine bottles and stuff like that. So in my own way, I guess as a kid, I was I was interested in it. But my best friend in high school, her mother was my high school history teacher. And mm. I was fortunate enough to travel with them on a number of occasions, which was a wonderful experience because I saw the world through a history teacher's eyes, which was a, a great thing. And I, when I went into college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be, but um, I took a trip with them to Colonial Williamsburg and I came back and I said, I want to work in a museum. And I, wow. but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do art or history. So I have dual degrees in art and art history. And yeah. then went on to do my graduate work in history um, just because I, I shouldn't say this probably publicly, but I didn't want to work in an art museum. I liked, yeah. um, and I'm, it was the right decision for me. There's something, um, working in history museums is extremely gratifying and it can be really difficult, but it's very gratifying work. Um, whenever you work with the public, you're never going to please everybody. Um, yeah. But it's still, it's the, the things, the people that I've gotten to meet and that have told me their stories and shared things with me, I am blown away with the way I was welcomed. And I, one of the projects, one of the last things I did when I was at the Oakland Museum is I did an exhibit on California and the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And through that, I interviewed um, Hmong families. I went into their home, wow. they took out all their things, and they showed me all of this, and they told me their stories. I met with um, uh, Cambodian um, people who were refugees at the time, and they wow. sat and told me their stories. I talked to Vietnamese who had been boat people or people who came in. I mean, just the whole range of things. I mean, one woman, uh, she was Hmong and she didn't know me from Adam. I went down and told her what I was doing. And she told me this story about carrying her wedding dress mm-hmm. on her back as she crossed the rivers to get out mm-hmm. and how she'd held it up to so it would stay dry. And she lent it to us to pee on display. And I'm just like, wow. 
oh my God, this, that's a priceless thing for her. And she let me take that. And that was always like, I never, I'll never forget that. Or the gentleman that had been imprisoned after, like, if you had worked for the American government and stayed behind and served, you were put into prison um, when North Vietnam took over. And he sat with me and told me what it, I mean, so many of them told me what had happened to them. And, you know, these are Californians now and we wanted to incorporate their stories. But it, you know, I went out in the fields and picked strawberries with another group of Hmong residents. I mean, so it's, you have an opportunity to, to work with living history in a different way when, when you're doing those kinds of things. And it's extremely rewarding and fulfilling. And for me, it's about getting their stories out. I mean, for that project, I really wanted to go not just how Americans, what happened to the Americans, but what happened to all these new Americans that had come to California because of the war. And that was a totally different experience and a totally different exhibit than what we had first um, envisioned. But it was, I think, better for that. Yeah. And and you said that was at the Oakland Museum? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, you... <laughs> There are a lot of departure points. I was keeping a mental track of of, of when you were speaking of, uh, you know, some of the some of the directions we could go from that. But um, so you did your own archaeological dig growing up. You did you did your own archaeological. And I was always dig. a nerd. I mean, my staff <laughs> goes, we always joke that we're just a bunch of wow. history. But yes, I did. Wow. And that's you know, wow. I still have some of those bottles. I yeah. use it still, but you know, that's a pretty. I, you know, I wanted to see what was in somebody else's trash and I was uh-huh. curious about it and which was a good little adventure for me. Well, and that's the, the curiosity aspect. And I feel like, um, something you, uh, something that came to mind when you were speaking was that, you know, I, I used to teach history in Napa. I was at a school over there in Napa and, um, you know, you encounter when you're trying to get high schoolers excited about history, you encounter a little bit of a little bit of friction, a little bit of resistance. But what I've noticed, and it just kind of mirrored what you were describing there a little bit, was that everyone's interested in their own personal history. And so you might encounter a person who's like, I don't like history at all as a subject, no interest. And then you get them talking about how their family came to California or something like that. And you'll see them get really animated. And in my mind, that's like almost like a little gateway. Mm-hmm. It's so many people go, well, history's boring, history's stagnant. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, you know, the thing is, is that with so many kids, I think mm-hmm. it's that the way we teach history is that history is something that happened over there. Mm-hmm. It's, and for us and what we do, and particularly with our films, the premise for those are that history, all history is local. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, and even like, you look at major events and I'll use the Vietnam war as an example. Everybody was touched by that in some way, but in different ways. And so as I interviewed different people, they had slightly different experiences, but they all were impacted by it. So to think that that only happened over there Mm -hmm. is a mistake. And so what I believe is that we have to teach people that history happens here and you're as much a part of it and you're impacted by it. And it's not something that's just in the past or over there. I mean, we, I, there's a quote that I love that, and I had it in my slide presentation and, mm-hmm. but history is, are, is, is a way for us to chart the future. Cause we need to have that constant dialogue with the past to, in order to help guide us in the yeah. future. And, and, and it, it is essential because 
you know, they always say, well, we keep repeating the same mistakes, but we also go down the same path and not learn from what happened before. And it's mm-hmm. not that we're making mistakes. It's that we're wasting time yeah. and we could be saying, okay, here's a precedent. This is, and this is what historian, this is what professors are saying. Okay. This is what happened here. And this was the ramification of it. I mean, yeah. I was a consultant for a period of time up in Marin County to help them with their history. And one of the things I did was write, um, it was right, like a history quote that went into the uh, newspaper there. Mm-hmm. And my favorite one was uh, about San Quentin prison, because it's always like, why would they put San Quentin in Marin? It's this affluent place and so forth. And it's like, it was there because mm-hmm. it was far away from San Francisco, which was the core at, during the gold rush. And that was considered far away. You had to get on a boat. It would be hard for the prisoners to get back to the city where the people were yeah. and so forth. But as that area grew it it's now in probably the most expensive real estate in northern california and nobody wants it there anymore but it's got walls that are eight feet thick and it ain't going any place that's right you know but it's those are um drew gilpin faust um wrote that history is a series of choices and Mm -hmm. i think we are looking at decisions and choices that people made in the past Mm -hmm. that lead to us to where we are today and we have to just like we're making decisions and choices now. Yeah. Who? Sorry. Who was that uh, author you mentioned? Drew Gilpin Faust. She Drew was Gilpin the first Faust. woman to be. Um, she was the first head of um, Harvard's history department and president of Harvard. First wow. woman president of Harvard. Yeah. She wrote about I two of my favorite books called Mothers of Invention, which is about Southern women during the Vietnam uh, during the Civil War, mm-hmm. and then she also wrote a book called The Republic of Suffering, which is about death and dying during that period. And kind of Whoa. it's is a really good. I, I she's one of my favorite um, historians, and she's really accessible um, to read. And her yeah. books are powerful. Just well, powerful. And- and that can be rare too. And you have uh, somebody with very dense subject matter knowledge who are also very easy to read. That's a yeah. nice, yeah, very she nice. She is easy to read. Yeah. And I th- her books were bestsellers. I I would recommend them to anybody. Um, awesome. So awesome. Thank you. Well, y- you mentioned something earlier that I-, I wanted to make sure we touched upon before going back to the center and kind of your the the. Um, kind of the contemporary activity and projects that you're working on. But you mentioned uh, a trip to Williamsburg and you also mentioned picking strawberries with some folks that you, uh, that you met through your history work. Um, are there any other kind of unique places uh, or locations? Cause I know, you know, sometimes all it takes is a trip, you know, you can travel 6,000 miles, you can travel 600 miles and there's history all around us, you know, you just kind of sometimes got to travel to see it. Any other unique places you've, you, your uh, history work has, has taken you to? Well, I'll, I, there, there's a number of different places where, how many do you want? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe the, the, the uh, abbreviated version or the top three or something like that. Well, one of the coolest things that I got to do of meeting somebody who was historically significant was um, I, Peter Stackpole, who is one of the original Life magazine photographers, and okay. he lived in the Bay Area, um, and we were working on an exhibit of his work. And I went up to his house, which was in the Oakland Hills, and mm-hmm. he worked with me and I at his copy stand and made copies of his photographs that we used to lay out the exhibit. But I got to wow. spend time with him, and he was just the most amazing 
kind man you can imagine. Um, He unfortunately lost his home in the Oakland Hills fire um, shortly after that, but, uh, and didn't live too many years afterwards, but Mm -hmm. just a great, great guy. But here locally, um, and I can't think of the name of the town, but where the hop hop riots took place and um, in the early 1900s, what's the name of the town? It's one out of my head. But there was um, the one of what, the man who died. They took him to the main house of mm-hmm. the, and I got to go to that house. And they said this is the room that they laid him in, and he died here. And so wow. that was a story I'd heard about since I had been in California. But to go through that house and see that, and then also all the buildings that went with that, they had a huge room that was just to feed all the workers that worked in the hop yards and Uh then how they processed them, the buildings that were, I mean, that's an amazing thing. And then the last one would be just a few years ago um, when the Sacramento B building um, was shut down for operation Mm -hmm. and going in there and seeing what it had been and that it was all shutting down. I mean, there was a credit union in there. There was a, they had a doctor and nurse full time in there. They had a library, they had a gym. I mean, there was a photo studio, there was a test kitchen. I mean, there was a restaurant, a cafeteria there for the employees and it went down to nothing. I mean, it was just, you want, you could go through the building and trace how it had grown. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, three or four stories of printing presses that they were tearing out while we were there. And it was just, it's staggering. I mean, yeah. to see what's happened to the print, to the published um, newspaper industry and kind yeah. of understanding the very, ha- we house the Sacramento Bee photo morgue here. We have all, all the bound volumes of the bee. And to look at kind of how they've been a watchdog for this community. And is that role going to continue? And seeing, and I, you know, for one of the films we did was on the KKK and the bee those were the reporters on the ground going out, really investigating that and trying to, you know, and they published people's license plates of who were at those meetings. They were really just on the cutting edge of reporting. Is that happening now? And if it's not, then what, what have we lost? Yeah. And who or who or what might be hopefully filling that space of just documentation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, you mentioned the, I'm not familiar with the hop yard riots. Was that something, I know California saw some, some, uh, tumultuous times during the kind of the unionization movement. Was that related to workers unions and what was happening there? Let me look, let me see if I can. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's something that when I worked at Oakland, we talked about the hop riots now here in the Sacramento area and particularly over by Sac state, there Mm -hmm. were a lot of, um, hop farms. And it was big business and they started growing hops here and beer, which is coming back Mm -hmm. um, full scale. But that started in the 19th century. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, No, if we can't find it, no worries. I don't don't want to make you go down the rabbit hole too far. No, but I should remember it because I was there, (laughs) but I'm trying to, it is a big deal. And it, um, because it was such a violent um thing that it it gen- generally gets yeah so it it was a big deal at the time mm-hmm. and that it ended in violence was a big part of that 
Yeah. And and to be able to go to the location that it happened or or uh adjacent events happened, that's in my in my historical background, that's what got me most excited about history. It was visiting the places, seeing the homes. Okay, here it is. Um it's the Wheatland Riot. Mm. And it took place in 1913. 1913. Okay. It was poor working conditions uh because of migratory laborers that yeah. um pushed that forward. Yeah. Thirteen Wheatland. So I was in Wheatland at the, and they were the people who owned the hot farms. Got it. Well, thank you. That gives me another uh, departure point for exploring California history. Yeah, that part is really um, the labor history, particularly related to migrant workers, is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was 1913. Got it. Yeah. Okay. The only only glimpse I got of that. Um, the migrant worker experience was just through some of Steinbeck's essays. Cause I know John Steinbeck documented, documented a ton of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was a little bit later, I think probably like 1940s, maybe or fifties. You should um, read Kathy Olmstead's book. Uh-huh. Um, and um, it's really good. And I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's on my shelf back there, but she actually, if you go to our website, she spoke, we did it. Um, we did an exhibit on the uh, it was the 1934 conspiracy trials that took place here uh-huh. in Sacramento, where they went in and raided the communist headquarters. And at that time, the communists were organizing them, the workers, uh-huh. and they raided it here in town. We have all the photographs from the trial and from the raids. Mm-hmm. And um, she, we asked her to come in and talk about it. And she became so involved with the research that she produced a book later, which I would highly recommend. It's really good. Yeah. And you can look at her talk. You can watch her talk on our website um, yeah. as well as part of our speaker series. Yeah. Kathy Olmstead. I'll remember that. Thank She's you. At UC Davis. By the oh, way. great. Okay. Yeah. Go Aggies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you. And, and, and kind of, changing tact here for a second and looking at what the center's doing um these days you know a lot a lot of our listeners they they love history they appreciate it but they're not quite sure what the day-to-day week to week of of historical preservation looks like and some of the activities you're doing at the center um i i had the opportunity i believe it was maybe a few months ago i, I used to work at the advertising agency runyon saltzman here in town and you guys hosted us uh you guys hosted us uh, we came by and, and explored the the location and the site you looked um, familiar i was like i must have met you before yeah yeah no i was part of that part of that group just you know looking at gene runyon and her uh her position in the tapestry of, of sacramento history um you know, if 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 for visitors that are going there today, and for visitors that maybe haven't been there before, you know, what what does it look like at at the center, and what are you guys working on right now? So, actually, our big event was this last weekend, which we partner with the state archives, the state library, and the city library to do archives crawl, and we do that the first weekend in October, first okay. Saturday in October, and it's basically a crawl. It's free, and with that, we do behind we do vault tours. All of the institutions do that. We also host um, smaller organizations we um, that have archives at our facility, mm-hmm. and other they're they're at all all four locations. So there's a lot of smaller organizations that come. Like we had the Delta Historical Society, Yolo County, um, Placer County, and we had the Automobile Museums Archival um, collect folks. But it's um, that's the rare time that you people get to go in the vault, because otherwise, if you come here, all you really see is our front room and 
research, but we don't because uh, somebody asked us on one of, on one of the tours on Saturday. They go, "Can we just come back and stroll through here?" And we went, "No, <laughs> absolutely not." Yeah, because there are so many little things um, that could just disappear, and we just can't do that because an archive isn't a library. Uh, and exactly. A museum collection, we're not a lend, we lend to other institutions, but we have very strict security things in our collections mm-hmm. policy that, because um, we lent um, just recently and we just got it back down to LA, um, the, um, the LA County Museum did an exhibit on reparations and they borrowed some materials that we had from a case that took place in 1864 with Daniel Blue and what is believed to be the last slave case in California. And so we have the probate records, the habeas corpus that was filed as part of that, that would free a young 12 year old girl from slavery. And even that's after the emancipation proclamation. So, you know, those kind of things that, um, we're, we try to get out there, but those are, we lend those out under very strict criteria for display and security reasons for climate, but security. And just so that they're not lost for the rest. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's different than your public library. You have Mm -hmm. to schedule an appointment. You usually would do an interview with the archivist. I don't do research appointments. My archivists handle all that or the curator does if they want three-dimensional materials. And then they schedule an appointment. You come to our reading room Mm -hmm. and look at the material and do your research here. Got it. Okay. So for the average history enthusiast that just wants to learn more, maybe point them in the direction of the uh, history museum instead. Uh, No, I wouldn't say that. I would say go to online. Um, There are so many resources available online of what you can look at. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a huge presence on YouTube, our films. We have multiple films that are out there. You can um, go to archive.org and you can look up our mug books and you can literally turn the pages that date from the Gold Rush era up to the 1950s. And so there are um, the assessor books are also yeah. accessible in that way. It's just a matter of figure, you know, what do you want to look at? Yeah. Um, those kind of things um, that if you really want an in-depth, you know, if you want to see the, you know, that go online right now until we yeah. have a better exhibition area so we can get more materials out on display. That, yeah. And that brought something I was in preparation for this call. I was doing a little bit of, of uh of research on the center and i know in recent years you guys and this could be still be happening but you guys have been doing a digitization process of a lot of um artifacts you know everything was print back in the day and so that's a big lift i imagine that a lot of archives and preservationists are having to to go through where are you guys in that project is it are you halfway through or am i or is this has this all already happened and i'm completely off the mark Oh, no, no. This will take years. I mean, we'll be digitizing for the next 50 years, probably, just because of the depth of material that we have. I mean, we digitize constantly. And I have two people out there right now that all they're doing is, or no, there's three or four here that that's all they're doing is scanning and digitizing. But it's so much material. And we have a huge film collection that um and that is laborious to mm-hmm. do that but we have gotten a series of grants in order to digitize those materials but we are constantly doing that and i and then as we're bringing in new collections that's even more so it's a never ending process i don't see 
you know, like everybody thinks, oh, well, you can go get all that done. If you were to come here and look (laughs) at the volumes of government records that we have, you know, that's one thing. But then the other reality is, is you've got a generation now that can't read cursive. Yeah. And so the majority of government records through up until the 1920s probably are written by hand in cursive. Wow. So if you're going to research those records, if they're not transcribed in some way, they're inaccessible to you. Wow. So yeah. just another thing, but we can digitize them, but there's going to, there's a generation that's coming up that doesn't know how to read cursive. I never, that had never occurred to me, <laughs> you no, know, in, in my daughter of, can't read cursive and she's wow. 23 years old. Yeah. Uh, but they don't teach it in school anymore. Mm-hmm. They can tell you a lot about a computer, but mm-hmm. they can't that, but it's, yeah. it's a very laborious process. You're dealing with fragile materials. So you can't like zip through it really fast. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes like with our probate records, they have been folded. They're this big and they get folded like this and then they get folded into themselves. So that's a whole process where we have to humidify them to flatten them out, even mm-hmm. in order to digitize them. And that whole humidification process can take weeks. That's and amazing. we do that in order to preserve them because they're better flat than stored. Otherwise, if they're stored for a long term, all folded up like that, they start to break down at the folds. Yeah. And then you're going to have pieces of documents instead of a solid piece. So there's always like in everything we do, it's to digitize, but it's also to preserve and conserve as we Mm -hmm. go through everything. The same thing with our film collection Um, that had we needed to get cold storage. And so that now is in a cold storage vault that's between 38 and 42 degrees at all times in order to add another 150 years to the life of those pieces. Yeah. So one of the things nobody thinks about, which I always like to bring up is we know how, I know how long a black and white photograph will last. I know how long paper will last under um, conditions and film, but Mm -hmm. nobody knows how long digital will last. Yeah. Nobody knows. One of those big mysteries. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've, how long have you been with the center of Sacramento history as the city historian? I, I, if I want to remember, was it 15, 10 or 15 years, more or less? 16 years. It'll be 16. 17 in January. Okay. So you that's kind of ample time to get a feel for kind of, um, you know, the various work and, and projects and areas that you're contributing on. Something I was curious about, um, you know, the pandemic threw a wrench in so many industries, so many uh, areas in the private sector and public sector. You know, how what how did the pandemic kind of uh, impact the operations of the of the center? Well, it heavily impacted us. We couldn't let researchers in. And I will say that we did our best to um, if people wrote us re- uh, requests and we we did our best to research and provide them with the information that we could. Yeah. Um, there were certain people that uh, we couldn't because of COVID. We couldn't let them come in. And as we had a waiting list of people that wanted to come in as soon as that was lifted. But we were one of the few people that we got permission to come in, but it was only one day a week. And so we couldn't be here with more than one or two people here at a time. Wow. Um, and so we would break that up of who came in what day, because you really need to be able to work with the collections. And that was what our days were to come in and work with the collection. And, you know, fortunately, we had a number of things. We had a, a good chunk online that we could continue to work with. But, you know. And you know, so some of us came in two days a week. Some of us came in three days a week. Now um, there's somebody here. We are more back to work than any any other division of the city. Wow. Um, there's somebody here five days a week. 
And most days there's um, five to, or maybe even seven to eight, all of us are here at the same time, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, but you need to work with the collection in order to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. It hurt us. We got behind. Yeah. But we work to catch up every day. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I'm just thinking that the work that I know you guys do, it definitely seems like something that you can't really do remote. You know, you need to be around the artifacts you need to, that you're going to be preserving in some way, shape or form, I would think. Mm -hmm. There are things like for me working from home some days, um, it's better because I can actually write and Mm -hmm. there are people coming into my office all the time. So that works out well, but you know, it does, you know, those are, and it is nice to be able to, or if I have meetings on zoom meetings all day, yeah. I'll stay home because why drive all the way in to sit at my office with the door closed when I could do it from home. For sure. So I've had those days where it's just easier to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, been experiencing something like that the last few years. Um, you know, I know you mentioned, I, I think we got a few more minutes left and just a couple of questions, uh, that I wanted to, to check in with you on. Um, you know, you mentioned the, did I, is it the archives crawl? Did I get that detail right? Archives crawl. Um, and did you say that was, that's an only October event or that's one? Do it once a year, the first Saturday in October. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Just wanted to flag that for folks that want to get involved. Um, leading into the holidays uh, that we've got rapidly approaching, um, any events or any, any, anything you guys have planned going on that the public would be or could be involved in? We do have our next event, which is a part of our speaker series. Mm-hmm. We have an, uh, Evelyn McDonough, who uh, her she just published a new book on um, Joan Didion, and she did her research here at the center. She'll be here October 19th. Um, our, the tickets are available online through the center. Mm-hmm. Um, they're $10 each, but that's limited to 75 people. That's all we can accommodate here. But we will be selling the books, and she will be signing afterwards. Awesome. Um and actually, there'll be some people here that grew up with Joan that she interviewed as part of her book as well. So, wow. um, and then October 21st, we partner with Soul Collective to do our um, Day of the Dead in Old Sacramento. And mm-hmm. that starts at three o'clock on the 21st and goes till nine o'clock at night. It's a really great event. Um, yeah. The the history of Day of, De- Day of the Dead here in Sacramento is so rich and particularly in the 60s with the Royal Chicano Air Force, who did so much to revitalize it here. Um, It's just a really rich heritage um, that I'm very happy to work with Soul Collective to have this event. And we, this is the first year full force back in the, on the 1849 scene in Old Sac. And it's, there's going to be over 20 vendors there and there's live music and um, dance performances. Wow. Dancers. It's a really great and many altars and things that are part of it. That's awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll add links to when this show goes, goes live, we'll add links to where folks can get um, tickets and learn more about the event and things like that. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. Day of the Dead is free. So just come down. Oh, just come down. All right. That's great. Awesome. Well, and I've, you know, I've, I've lived on, on both coasts at one point in my life and um, Sacramento has such a in my mind, a well-preserved historic district. Like it's so cool to to come to a city the size of Sacramento and encounter a space that, you know, if you squint your eyes just a little bit, you could be in the 19th century or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, no, it's true. I mean, um, it's, Sacramento is very unique in what has been preserved over time. I mean, mm-hmm. you go to someplace like San Francisco, it's, it's kind of spread, 
spread out in a way, but Sacramento yeah. and also because you have Sutter's Fort here, you have old Sacramento and uh, the old city cemetery is such a amazing place of that to tell the story. And we are constantly working on more interpretive signage and different cell phone tours and things like that. So people can understand the depth of who came here. It mm-hmm. really is a document about the California gold rush, that whole cemetery is and the diversity of this state. Yeah. Something that uh, popped into my head when I was when I was doing some research was I know that the um, San Francisco earthquake 1906 was devastating in a lot of different ways. Um, did I am I correct in hearing that the Sacramento archive is like is is the kind of oldest uh, active archive in the state? Or maybe I'm, I might be miss saying that. But is there something like that that where it's it's there was something that was in San Francisco and it's been but it was destroyed. So Sacramento's the place to be. Right. In 1906, City Hall collapsed and burned, and uh, a large okay. portion of. Uh, the city records were destroyed. That's where all the paper sons came from. Uh, The the Chinese were able to say, oh, my record was destroyed in the 06 earthquake. I really am a resident. And they actually worked, which is in that sense. But we have, I believe, I think we have the most complete set of records from the city that are together of the city of any city here in California. And they're the the oldest because they go back to 1848, which is... um, when um, California and statehood is 1850, but we we document it from the beginning. And our assessor books Amazing. list Sam Brannan and all of those other people and Sutter and who owned what. And they're really these amazing documents, but also they've never, you know, as you start to mine them more, you see that like one of the things I pointed out is women owned property, but they only listed their initials. So nobody knew it was a woman that owned the property until we did a little research. And the same thing, African-Americans were property owners, but they oftentimes were not their full name. So you didn't know who they were. And it didn't say you're, this is a black man or this. So just a little, you can start to see kind of how diverse this community was um, in the beginning, because people live like uh, Daniel Blue, an African-American man who came here in 1849, literally lived across the street from Peter Burnett, our mm. first governor. And, wow. and Peter Burnett was a huge racist and obviously didn't like a black man living across the street from him yeah. or anywhere near his property. But um, according to family folklore is that Daniel really enjoyed coming out of his house and letting um, Peter Burnett know that he was there. So was there. good for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, just kind of as we as we wrap up this dis- discussion, um, something I did want to ask is kind of taking a step back from the day-to-day work you're doing and kind of the larger trends and patterns in historical preservation, especially in, in Sacramento and Sacramento County. You know, are there any opportunities that are kind of on the horizon that the center um, is considering? Are there any threats that you that you feel that would impact the the mission and the work that you guys are doing there at the center? Any kind of bigger um, trends that you're noticing and either excited about or concerned about? Well, the number one thing we worry about is our location because we're right next to the levee in an area that was the natural drainage for flooding and. Mm. It's been well documented that Sacramento is the most likely city to flood um, next to New Orleans. And we are well past uh, overdue for a major flood in this area. Um, Last year, I think we got a little taste of what a lot of precipitation is like, but we'd been dry for a long time. 
this year, if we get that amount of rain or more, we will hit ground saturation and that will be critical for us. Um, and, you know, how do we, we need a new home. We need to be someplace that we're more visible than in a natural drainage area next to, door to the levee. And so that's a yeah. huge issue for us of which part, you know, I'm trying to get out there and talk to the public and let them know that this is, this is something that their community should be proud of that they have. Not many cities have this kind of these historical resources available to them for free. There's yeah. no charge to come here. Um, and we don't charge for copies, even if they want copies of documents. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is, this is your treasure. This is, you know, and we work every day to continue to collect, to document all of the people that are here and the, and the businesses and all of those things. So it's an ongoing process as we continue to document. I like to joke with um, upper management. It's like, well, what history do you want me to leave out um, at this point? Do, do you want me to leave out what happened here during COVID? Yeah. Is that okay? You know, cause I'm running out of room. Yeah. And so we have to think about those things. Who's yeah. doing is not do we want to start thinking of whose story is not important enough to collect yeah so yeah i i um so it's so the effort to identify a new home for the center uh with sufficient space sufficient that has sufficient facilities to house everything um is that in your estimation are we is progress happening in your estimation in terms of lo locating you know getting folks involved, getting folks aware, where in kind of the process would you say that we're at right now? Well, what we, where we're at is really trying to get that broader awareness that okay. we need to move. We also, you know, and trying to recognize that we need a place, uh, a, a more centralized place for we, for us to display our collections and mm -hmm. to tell those stories. Um, uh, Cause there's potential. I'm, when I was giving uh, the talk at the historical society afterwards, a uh, gentleman, cause it was brought up that I had created an exhibit that went to the Smithsonian. And he said, well, why don't you do that here? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't really have a large enough exhibit space to create something of that size. Yeah. And also I've never had a budget to do that. The exhibit that I did, which was um, silver and gold case images of the California gold rush that went to the Smithsonian that I had a budget of $225,000. Okay. Yeah. And I don't have that kind of money here, but that's what it takes. I sure. mean, and that was in 1998. So there's an inflated cost to today. But I think, you know, does Sacramento want something like that? Do they want to have that kind of recognition? Because these collections deserve that visibility. Um, I just don't have a place to do it yeah. um, that's on a large enough scale or uh, I, as a city employee, am not, I can't raise, I can apply for grants, but I can't raise any money. Um, mm -hmm. It's considered a conflict of interest. And yeah. so how do I get that much money to create something onto that scale? We have the materials that could do that. Well, we house the Tower Records collection. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that would be a great exhibit that could be super fun, that could travel and really talk about an industry that's the record industry that's changed and evolved. And but also the fact that Tower started here in Sacramento and became an international corporation. Yeah. And, you know, those are and I I think that we've talked, reached out to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're very interested, but yeah. it's that, how do we raise the money? How do we make this happen kind of thing? Well, and very small staff. Yeah. Um, do all these things. Yeah. It, well, it, yeah. It start, as far as I can tell, it starts with awareness. So I hope this episode does a little bit 
little modest amount to move the needle or, or maybe more than that. But um, yeah, it's it's awesome to to see what you guys are doing. And Marsha, I appreciate you taking the time today to connect and talk about the the important work you guys are doing there. Um, any for for listeners that want to learn more about the center, or want to learn more about the work you guys are doing, um, you know, where where can they go to either encounter content that you guys are putting together or just learn more about the center? You can go to our website. That's one mm-hmm. place to start. You can also search our, we have a pretty large presence on YouTube with a lot of the original productions that come out of here, yeah. or you can go to archive.org and a lot of our film footage, which we house the KCIRA and KOVR, as well as private film collections here, mm-hmm. which are phenomenal. And if you go to archive.org, you can search pretty much any topic and find uh, a film that's from us. Um, wow. So that you understand the, the treasure trove that's here, but also the online archive of California. You can search our collections and archival. Um, we have finding aids available on that, but we actually are used heavily. But unfortunately, you know, the sad thing is, is collections don't get as much attention as big art museums do, um, yeah. but they're just as important and just as irreplaceable and just as valuable. Yeah. Well, I think that is a, Great place to wrap up, Marcia. So, so thank you again for your time. Um, this was awesome. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. I, I love talking history whenever I can. No, no, it was great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the Society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.